and we're live on Facebook once again. This is Nuance, and I'm Mike Scala, joined as always by Jay Carter, also known as Timid, the hip hop MC and the chair of BLM Tokyo. What's going on, Jay? Happy New Year! Yes, Happy New Year, and I am still down in Florida. Last week there was a comment that I was looking tan. I think now I'm not only tan but sunburnt from being out uh, on the bay on the jet ski and in the ocean earlier today. Oh God. Sunburns are not gonna be fun. Yeah, I don't think it's too extreme. You know, I've been careful with the suntan lotion. I did get a little burned today. Sometimes you can't avoid it on those jet skis. You're out with the sun beaming everywhere, the rays bouncing up and down the water and everything. You know, it's the price you pay for some fun on the water, right? Yeah, I can I can see actually around your eyes a bit, yeah. But it's it's not as it's not as bad. Give it another day or two, might start peeling. I've seen I've seen much much worse because uh, I, I grew up in Hawaii and uh, yeah exactly exactly I hopefully see, settle into a nice tan. So. Yeah, I used to see tourists come that I guess were not used to sun and they'd fall asleep on the beach and then wake up and their whole body would just be ridiculously burnt to the point where they could barely walk properly without it being painful. It's yeah, like, yeah, you need to get screened for cancer or something, dude. Like chill out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's always a concern as well. So I did drive down here, and of course, last week I was in Maryland on the trip down, and now I'm in Florida where I've been hanging out. But I wanted to ask you do you generally prefer road trips or flying places? I prefer flying. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I know it's counterintuitive because I, I'm not counterintuitive. I know it's, it's kind of strange, maybe, because I get antsy when I get in the car. And I want to get to where we're going. It's like I'm in the in the car and like I know the destination and I know the destination's far. And it's just like I just want to be there already. And even though even in a, a plane, you still it's a long journey, but I don't get that same feeling in the in the plane. Really? Even with a car, you can stop, you can get out, you can take a break, you can, you know, whatever. But to me, it's just like oh, that's just more obstruction to get in there. So yeah, I wonder why that is because like you said you could control your own destiny in a car you can get out so to me i would be more antsy on a long plane ride because you can't control any of that you can't stop the plane you can't take a break you're just trapped in there for the whole trip yeah you would and you would think that i mean i get that but for me getting in the plane i don't get that same oh i need to hurry up and get there feeling that i do in a car for some reason hmm. so you said i need to hurry up and get there so maybe that's the distinction like now we're analyzing this, but when you're driving, you feel like you're in control of the mission. Whereas when you're on the plane, it's more passive. I'm sure when you're on a plane, you don't think I need to hurry up and get there because you're not getting the plane anywhere. You're just going along for the ride. But it could be. Car, but it's like you feel like it's your responsibility to get there. But I feel the same way even if I'm the passenger and I'm not driving. Okay. All right. So, yeah, it, it's still like. Oh my God, we've been here 10 minutes already. Let's, let's hurry up and go. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder what that is. But see, to me, the trip is the destination. So right. I don't feel like I need to hurry up and get there. When I'm in the car, I'm already there. Like that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm doing the road trip, if that's my intention to take a road trip. Right? right. I mean, maybe I'm just driving someplace to get someplace. But if I'm doing a road trip, that's most of the fun of the trip is being on the road. Mm yeah you can stop and you can check out different things along the way you know we crashed in south carolina it's an adventure i, I think of it that way as an adventure but also when i travel 
I don't like to have a set itinerary and think, okay, every day we're going to do this, get up at this time, go here, go here, go, you know, I don't like that. I like just being spontaneous because to me, that's the whole point of the trip, taking a break from the monotony of your daily life and just having that adventure, seeing where the road takes you, right? That's fun to me. Yeah. And I like that. I, I travel that way too, but I do that when I'm at the destination, not on the trip. <laughs> You know, so if I get to like, if I were going, for example, going down to, to Florida or going down to Miami, um, I probably wouldn't be trying to schedule like, you know, people schedule tours and they schedule yeah. this and that. I don't get out there and just do whatever, you know, you do. Um, but getting there. Yeah. That meandering just doesn't really. Right. Sometimes you miss out on things. I'll be honest. Like, you know, it's not worth to me the scheduling of everything. But for example, when we got down to South Florida, we noticed that Dave Chappelle was playing that same night. And if we had known about it, we would have got there, you know, a couple of hours earlier to see the show. We just we just missed it because we weren't even playing anything. We're just like, hey, we're here. Let's just yeah. check out the spot. Oh, Dave Chappelle is just here now. You know what I mean? Like that stuff does happen to you. <laughs> yeah. And I, I feel that too. Like, um, like I've been to a couple of different places and then you look at other people's who have been the same place and then they did they have these pictures and they went here and they went there you know because they scheduled this tour they scheduled to visit this and then that and it's like wow that might have been cool to go check out but you know right right or yeah sometimes you stumble upon something and you're like hey i should do that oh wait it's just too late to do because now i'm leaving tomorrow or whatever yeah. it's late in the day to do it today like it just wasn't planned <laughs> so there probably needs to be like a a, a mix you know well, or you could just not plan and just accept those losses, right? Accept the fact yeah. that that's going to happen sometimes, but that's yeah. a choice that you're choosing. You're saying, I'm going to be spontaneous. And to be spontaneous means you'll get yourself into some great adventures, but you are also going to miss out on things potentially that you could have planned. Yeah. Yeah. So, it is what it is, but it's fun. It's always fun to get away. And I do have... I believe some of the Atlantic Ocean in my ear. So <laughs> my hearing is not at 100% right now, but we're working with what we got. Yeah. Did you do the, you know, tilt your head to the side and then like hop up and down on one leg? Thing? Oh, the Kramer thing? Oh, is that Kramer did? Yeah, he almost took down a plane with them. So oh. no, be careful with that. Um, yeah, it'll come out, you know. it's Don't do it on a plane, then. You'll be nah. fine. Yeah. But yeah, no, jet skiing is always fun. And every time I'm away, I'm always like, okay, how can I replicate this in New York? Or can I move here? Or can I get a condo here and be here like whatever I want? Like you always have these ideas when you have fun on a trip, but it, you know, the wheels are turning again about the jet ski thing. Like, okay, I had so much fun on a jet ski today. Should I get a jet ski in New York? But then you gotta think about, you really only have good weather for that a few months out of the year. And then where do you store it? And what do you do with it? And you know, it seems like it could be a headache, but it's also a very fun thing to have. Yeah, well, you could rent jet skis. Yeah, well, you mean, yeah it's not spontaneity. Is that, to me, the fun is having something available so that when I feel like it, I could just do it. Right. So if I had a jet ski and I woke up today and said, I want to just ride this jet ski all day today, I could do that without much trouble. That's the idea. Yeah, but, but then you got to <laughs> go, you got to go fuel it up. You got to right. go pack it on the thing. You got to haul it to the there are logistics. The there are logistics. Gotta, well, that's the thing. I wouldn't want to haul it anywhere. I'd want to keep it. <laughs> on the water i'd want to rent out a slip right and then yeah. it's an expense every month it's an expense yeah yeah, yeah. I, know, I know you start thinking about these things and okay then there's like boat insurance all these different factors that come up and you're like is it really worth it 
And you, you know, gotta walk like, when you're on vacation. Yeah, like I wanna be here all the time. Okay, but logistically that could be an issue. But you know, you have these thoughts. Yeah, just go to the rental place, like, you know, pay for it and for the afternoon, do your thing and then come back. Or maybe I'll get a kayak instead. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> no, a kayak is much less overhead. It's easier. Yeah, well, but you still got to store it somewhere. Yeah, store it someplace. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, well, we've got some news to get into. Because even though I'm in Florida, I guess the news still goes on. Yep. Something's happening in the world, I suppose. Well, yeah, life goes on. Yeah, so I know we've been recovering. We've been recovering. Yeah, so we have been recovering. I was going to say reporting on the George Santos scandal, but yeah, I guess we're all trying to recover from how someone like that was able to win an election with such a fabricated background. And we've let people know because the question has come up about is it a crime to lie the way he did? And the answer is not necessarily. It's lying is not a crime, depending on circumstances. However, there are investigations now because of the extent of the lies and potentially there could have been, and we know we don't know, this is why there's an investigation, but there could have been lies even on forms that were signed under the penalty of perjury. For example, financial disclosures, certain things that were reported do carry that penalty of perjury because when you sign them, you're saying essentially you're taking an oath to tell the truth. And it's possible because he lied about so much other stuff that he lied in, in these circumstances as well. So that's being looked at as well. There is also a bill that was introduced by Richie Torres from the Bronx, which has to be reintroduced now that there's a whole new session this year. But he's calling it the Santos Act, and it would require all federal candidates to disclose under the penalty of perjury their educational background, employment history, and record of military service. So the idea here, obviously, is to prevent something like this from happening again. If you had someone stipulate that under oath, then you could hold them criminally liable if it turns out to be a lie. Right. And it's, it's, you know, he hasn't even taken the seat yet, and this thing is already blown up to where they're getting into it, that there had to be some legislation written, like, with his name on it already. Like, you, you, you know you kind of messed up when that's the case. Well, here it is. It's what we call a backronym. You know what a backronym is? No, I don't, actually. I've never heard that word. Yeah, so it's like Patriot Act is, is an example of it. It's an acronym, but instead of working forwards, you work backwards. So you come up with the name first, and then you try to find words that fit that abbreviation. Okay. So it's not a coincidence, obviously, that it's Santos, right? They named it after him. But there is an abbreviation. So, so Santos is short in this case for stopping another non-truthful office seeker. <laughs> okay. I get that. Okay, yeah. sounds good. Uh, and now since we talked about it last time, a few more things have come out. Um, I know we had mentioned like at that time that the, I guess the 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 party, the Republican Party hadn't really made any announcements now. So far, from my understanding, nobody in the higher, you know, up at the top has said anything in regards to this. But um, there have been some in the state, there's some district attorneys uh, who are investigating Santos. And there have been some other things that have come out, uh, particularly there's uh, apparently he was guest speaker at a Jewish event. And people got the idea that he 
implied that he was Jewish, even though he said that he's Catholic. Um, and also he mentions in, in a tweet, they dug up some of his tweets, one tweet where he mentions that his mother died in 9-11. Um, and then another years later, where apparently his mother died sometime, you know, 10 years after that or something. So it's like, you know, the more they dig into it, it's like the more he's either been misleading about things or there's more questions that come up. Right. No, it seems pretty outlandish that this yeah. could happen. But again, you know, we've covered it before. People are candidates for office. They say things. And a lot of it goes unchecked because it's not really considered big news. They're, until they're in Congress or win an election for Congress, they're not necessarily major public figures to the point where the news is going to scrutinize their every word. So they can kind of fly under the radar a lot of the time. Right. Right. And I think this is what is really scary about this is that he would be a, a congressman um, to committed this type of act, this type of fraud, basically, um, and then be one of the leaders of the country. You know, that's right. the and that's a very important point, because I think we lose sight of that based on how our politics has become. Right. It's like this blood sport now where people say they'll do anything to win and people just kind of expect that. But we have to bring it back to this is someone we're entrusting with the public's well-being, in a sense. Right. We're saying that you are one of the leaders of the country at the federal level. And so you should be held to a higher standard, at least not being a liar about everything that you say. I mean, can we start there? Right. I understand that. It's politics and it gets crazy and we can start pointing fingers back and forth. But can we at least have that decency to say we're going to demand that people not be blatant liars like that? Right. I right. mean, this is very blatant. This isn't just something that you can say, well, maybe he exaggerated or he can argue both ways. I mean, and he's admitting now that a lot of this was just not true. Right. And and, and um, there's a question in the chat. Did he say why? And I from I haven't seen any. Um, any reason that he's given. Um, the only thing that I've seen him say uh, in pushing back against this is that to say that he embellished a little bit or that everybody embellishes a little bit. So he hasn't really come out and said why he blatantly lied. I mean, because it's, it's obvious. And I, I feel like media and uh, political leadership, they need to be very explicit when talking about or addressing him or what he's done about that this is blatant this is not an embellishment this is not you know calling a, a a garbage a garbage man a sanitation engineer it's not the same type of thing like flowery language so to speak this is blatant you know i went to this school and graduated from nyu and baruch and he never even graduated college period well so the answer is obvious, right? Why did he do it to make his resume look more impressive to voters? That's the answer. Yeah. I think the real question is, why did he think he could get away with it? Yeah, that's another good question. So, you know, it, it, yeah, I mean, it's 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 encouraging that, you know, there are people investigating it, that, that some people are taking it seriously. It's very disheartening um, that the Republican leadership are not speaking out about it. They could be doing their own internal investigations. But if he does, 
either give up the seat or something some way is found that he can't take the seat they are going to lose a critical seat and and i think that's you know they're kind of like you know potentially you, they could right i mean potentially have to be another election and right there will be a different democratic i mean i mean uh, a republican nominee presumably and maybe right. they could still win but it would be putting that seat up for grabs again yeah I'd, I'd like to hear from some of his, uh, the people, the Republicans he ran against, if he did, if there were anybody in that election, because he basically took the spot that they were going for, but he did it under false pretenses. So I'd be curious what their, their responses are. I was actually just trying to pull up that particular district. Yeah, who he ran against. I'm not sure there was a primary. Uh, well, that could be, yeah, a way he got. Now, was this district uh, uh, one that a Democrat historically wins? Yes. So he was an upset winner, basically. Correct. So maybe they just threw him in to be like, okay, we need somebody in this race uh, here. Well, he ran for it before and lost. Hmm. So he's been trying for the seat. It's a seat that a Democrat has held, but even if you go back, let's see, in 2020, for example, Democrat Tom Swazi won 55, well, really 56% to 43%, 44%. So it's a Democratic held seat historically, but still potentially in play, especially in a year like last year, where the Republicans did run strong, even though they lost New York, they were pretty strong at the top of the ticket, and you knew you were going to see some seats flipped. So right. this could have easily been one of them. It wasn't like completely out the realm of possibility. You could have predicted that this could have been one of them. Now that you said that he's run for the seat before, and that brings up uh, another question. When he ran before, did he run with the same resume? Right. So could this potentially be something that he's been running with for like the past 10, 15 years? And he just hasn't been caught because he didn't win. So he wasn't under as much scrutiny. Um, and so, you know, now, of course, he's won the seat. There's going to be more eyes on him. So could this be something that he's been perpetuating like throughout his history? Most likely, right? I mean, well, we'll have to look into that. Also, then you can, but it would be odd like if he didn't, if he wasn't <laughs> saying, or if he said something completely different in 2020 than he did in 2022. And it's like, well, how come that wasn't noticed if, if the resume just completely changed? Right. So I, I, I thinking is it probably was the same. Yeah, he was lying about it back then too. Why didn't his Democratic opposition not catch it the first time around? That's the question too. Well, he's running against Democratic incumbent. See, last year it was an open seat. And so you knew that was going to be more competitive. This okay. was a Democratic incumbent, probably didn't worry too much about him. Yeah, true, true, true. Um, you know, if you look at the Democratic primary in 2022, see, so you have one, two, three, four, or five candidates on the ballot. Democratic primary was very competitive. And that was also something that came up. The Democratic nominee was obviously criticized for not doing enough to point this out. 
but it was emphasized that he just won his primary shortly before the general election. I mean, he had a very a very tough Democratic primary to win. And right. so he was really focused on beating his, his Democratic opponents. He didn't right. have much time to go up against the Republican. Right. Yeah, I think, yeah, this is, this is, this is not going to, you know, end anytime soon. I really think um, Republican leadership um, at the top being silent on this kind of speaks volumes. It raises the question of party loyalty versus uh, the country. Um, raises integrity questions in my mind. Mm. Uh, it's a big issue. Yeah. There's, I guess you can call it an analog happening at the state assembly level where a candidate won on the Republican line for assembly. However, there are questions as to his residency and whether he legally, constitutionally, is eligible to serve in the assembly because he had just run for city council the previous year using a different address in a different borough. And so you have to live for a year. Usually it's in your district for a year, but this was redistricting. So at least in your borough for the year, but there were questions as to whether he met that requirement. And there were meetings held in Albany about whether the assembly would even seat him. And it seems like the majority of the Democrats believe he should not be seated. But as of now, there hasn't been an announcement made as to whether he will take that seat or not. It's possible they don't seat him you know, which would probably result in a lawsuit and court battle over this. Could the assembly block someone from being seated? But it's a constitutional issue. I mean, if it's determined that he didn't meet those residency requirements, then he constitutionally cannot serve in the seat. Right. And then that would be something that you would expect in something that's a, a fair process. If he didn't meet the requirements, then and he pretended that he'd met the requirements. I don't know if he did or he didn't. Then yeah, he should be but some that might kind require of require a court case. I mean, because the assembly can take a vote on it, but they're not holding an actual trial. They right. can do hearings if they want and try to get into it. But really, you would need a judge to do that. You'd have to have a trial and have both sides with lawyers present evidence and have that discussion. I mean, it isn't always that cut and dry especially when someone's potentially embellishing or lying about their information, like Santos did. I'm not saying it is happening in this case, but it could happen, right? Someone could say, hey, I lived here. The other part, people can say, no, you didn't, and you have to have a fight about it. Right. So. Yeah. Issues about, you know, secondary residences or if this is a relative's house, but you've been staying here. Do you get mail here? Do you have a bedroom there? You know, it gets fun. Well, uh, that's, uh, you know, I guess that would all be a part of, uh, you know, cleaning up the process, the election process, you know, looking at, at where these these problem points are, creating new rules or, 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 or laws to affect, you know, so. Yeah, and so on that tip, we will get into new laws that have gone into effect in New York on January 1st, because what happens is, when a bill is passed and signed by the governor, oftentimes it will say this will take an effect January 1st of next year, or it could be even two years from now or more. So these are laws that we're going to get into that are new laws as of January 1st, 2023. I also want to mention, though, before we get into that, the controversy down in Washington, because we don't have a speaker. In fact, the House adjourned 
there was a vote on who was going to be the new speaker of the House. Since Republicans have the majority of the House, it's expected to be Republican, of course. We were thinking uh, McCarthy had it. Turns out not to be the case. You need a majority of votes, and he fell short of that majority. And they're just not that into you. Seems that's what's happening here, right? There's a split in the Republican Party. You have people who are more conservative who are pushing for someone else or really just protesting McCarthy and that wing of the party. And they've got their own, of course, agenda and their own things that they want done. And, and you know, maybe they're, they're using this speaker vote as a way to negotiate some of these items that they want pushed, knowing that they don't have enough people necessarily to get their choice of speaker in there, but maybe they can do enough to throw a wrench in the process and get some concessions. Now, if I'm not mistaken, um, I did hear it on the news, like this is the first time this has happened in like a hundred years or something like that? In exactly a hundred years, yeah. So the last time that happened was 1923, almost always. In fact, every time, <laughs> going back a hundred years, there has been a speaker elected on the first ballot. So we're now up to the third ballot, still no consensus. Yes, this is, a once in a hundred year event showing you just how deeply divided our politics is. And in this case, how divided the Republican party even is. Now, a hundred years ago, there were like a lot of different rounds that they had to go through. Like we're on a third one now, but um, wasn't it like in the teens or something like the last one? Yeah, and this could go on for a long time because as of now, it doesn't seem like we're getting that majority. I mean, you have to ask yourself, okay, after every iteration of this, what is changing and what concessions are being made? Is right. it not going to be Kevin McCarthy? It could be someone else altogether. You could end up with a compromise pick. And as a student of history, I've seen this happen, not necessarily with speaker candidates, but I've seen it happen in politics. I mean, you, you can look at presidential nominees over the course of history. Someone like, I don't know, Harding in 1920, right? people who just kind of emerged at these conventions as a compromise pick because you have someone who the establishment wants maybe then you have someone else favored by another wing maybe it's a more extreme wing or whatever more ideological and then you have these clashes oftentimes you can't get to a consensus and no one wins and so they end up picking someone who's just a compromise who nobody really hates but no one really likes either and then you get someone i think oftentimes who's not truly magnificent because they're just there they're there because they're not hated but you know what oftentimes if you're going to be truly great you need to be hated by some people because you have to be ruffling some feathers right so if everyone just kind of is like yeah okay you're not really inspiring and you, you know it's, i think that kind of holds us back because you don't get someone who really is going to move us forward yeah just uh, yeah i wonder how that's who is gonna who's gonna come out of this? There's several picks who would not be good choices. Um, like who would be a good choice? Yeah. Well, you'd be picking amongst Republicans. Yeah, I know. That's that's you know makes it for me. It makes it very right. Visual, you know, because um, there's a lot of there's a lot of crazies out there. Here's the best tweet on this topic. It comes from Melanie Zanona. She's a Capitol Hill reporter for CNN. Mm. And so she's down there trying to figure out what's going on. She said a GOP lawmaker to me just now. Santos says McCarthy will be speaker. It must be true. Wow. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, if we look at look at how his uh, track record is, then you know, perhaps we should be looking at someone else that's going to be speaker. So, All right, if he predicts it, yeah, yeah. Wow. Now, I do want to briefly he was. Yeah. Go ahead. I said at least he didn't. At least Santos didn't say that. You know, he was speaker. He was the, the speaker, or he is the speaker now. Imagine yeah. that. Imagine yeah. he just gets up there and says he was elected speaker last night. Yeah. With the gavel. He's like, I, I, I won already. Yeah. So, yeah, I wanted to mention briefly why this even matters, because, you know, sometimes you see people in office with these different titles and you think, who cares, this majority whip and this and, you know. Right. But speaker is critically important because they essentially control the house in many ways. So what ends up happening is there are committees, people know that, for different subject areas, right? You, if, you, if a congressperson introduces a bill, before it can get to the floor of the Congress, it has to go through committee. And it's assigned a committee based on the type of bill it is. So now that Republicans have control of the House, they're going to also control the committees. And you're going to have a Republican who's a chair, and then you have what's called a ranking member who's the top Democrat in that committee. But the Republican who's in charge of the committee, the chair of the committee, gets to set the agenda for that committee and decide which bills get put up for a vote. Well, once bills get past committee, then they're eligible to be voted on at, on the floor of the House. But the speaker actually decides which bills get put up for a vote at all. So just because something gets through committee doesn't mean it's automatically guaranteed a vote. The speaker has to say, we're going to choose this bill, this bill, and this bill. So really, the speaker sets the entire agenda for the Congress. If the speaker doesn't support something, it pretty much doesn't get anywhere. So even though it's a highly democratic body, you know, hundreds of members, there's really one person who's pulling the strings in many ways. And that's why right. it's critically important. I mean, it's one of the most powerful positions in the whole country. Right. Yeah. Um, and that that was, uh, and it, it's not coming to me now, but there was something that came up recently that um, that had been headed past several times but the speaker wouldn't bring it to the to the floor um and then it finally got brought and it was in the news last half of the year and i don't remember what it was but it kinda, in particular yeah there was something in particular they were going to vote on and it had i can't it's, i can't remember what it was right and you see this but, at pretty much all levels of government like this is yeah. congress which is federal but then at the state level you've got the same thing on the assembly and in the Senate, we don't call it the Speaker of the Senate in New York State, but the leader does that. And then you have um, in the City Council as well. You have mm-hmm. committees. You have the Speaker who controls the strengths of which bills get a vote, which ones don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, stay tuned on this. We'll see what ends up happening if McCarthy does become Speaker or. If someone else gets it. It's funny, uh, Hakeem Jeffries actually had more votes than McCarthy did because the Democrats were united behind him as leader and the Republicans. But he didn't have a majority. What's that? But he didn't have a majority. Well, right. So it would be leader of the Democratic conference. Right. So it would be the minority leader of the House. Right, right. So. But, yeah. There was one other thing real quickly, if I'm not mistaken, and I very well could be, but um, 
the speaker doesn't necessarily have to be a congressperson or even a member of the party. That is true. Constitutionally speaking, they don't have to be, but historically they are, right? I mean, so they could decide, hey, you know what, we want to nominate such and such for it and vote for it. In theory, in theory, they can say we're going to vote for Joe Blow down the block for speaker. Yeah. Oh, it it reminded me. What was that? What was that guy? Oh, what was the guy during the, um, I think that was the, the, the Palin uh, McCain run and they were talking about Joe the, the plumber or the something. Plumber. Yeah. So maybe they'll go for Joe the plumber. He actually ran for Congress too, right? Um, I think he tried. Yeah. So. So we need to be doing more to just restoring not only integrity, but people's faith in the integrity of our politics. And I saw this play out at the poker table. Yes, I was at the Hard Rock Casino in Hollywood, Florida. And at the poker table, they were talking about Santos, believe it or not. And it was a guy who was a hardcore Republican, I could tell, who was being a bit of an apologist for him. He just didn't want to discuss it. So he was there. He wanted to just talk trash about Biden and the Democrats. That was his whole angle. And, you know, Biden just did this thing with China. But when Trump did it, he was called a racist. But Biden's allowed to do it. He was just going off the whole time. And someone brought up, what about George Santos lying? He didn't want to get into that conversation, right? So he was like, oh, they all lie. Yeah, he's lying, but they all lie. Biden lies all the time. He, he brought it back to Biden. Like, this guy is just so trained to stay on message. And right. I don't think he was an actual politician. I think he was a Republican voter who just got the memo. Like, he, you know, he knows how to keep the conversation going the way he wants to keep it going. Right. And we got to really get away from that. Um, like, we got to look at what's happening and, and take that into account, you know. If you're a Republican, you know, that's cool. But if your candidate has blatantly lied to your face and is very unapologetic about it, pretty much, um, you should feel some kind of way about that. That's a good point, right? It's like accepting an abusive relationship at that point. Yeah. You know, I mean, people will be apologists for for politicians in their party or for their candidate that they voted for. But, you know, they're it does come a time where you have to call them out on their BS as well. Yeah. Yeah. So because it's also a matter of credibility and I see this play out in the courtroom. You want to make certain concessions, believe it or not to the other side, ones that aren't going to hurt your case, but that give you credibility because this way, when you're making your argument, it shows that you're serious and you're not just arguing for the sake of the argument. You're not just arguing a point because you think it's your job to argue everything. So if you can concede a minor point and say, you know what, you're actually right on this little detail, but let me give you my argument. Then you're showing that you have some credibility here, right? You're not just arguing to argue, you're arguing what's important and you're conceding when you're wrong. Right. Yeah. And we that makes that makes it easier to convince people when you're right, when you're able to, when they can see that you're able to concede when you're wrong. It's it's a show of integrity, you know. Because it's like, you know, like you said, this they'll, they'll be looking at it and be like, well, this guy just wasn't being bullheaded. Like he, you know, was cognizant of what was going on. And so he conceded this point or whatever. Let's, let's hear him out. And we need that more in, in our politics and in our support of, of the politicians that, you know, that we vote for. Yes. And that's also how you can bring more people into your fold. 
if you're trying to recruit people to your side, if you're at that poker table and there are some undecided poker players at that table, you want to be able to make concessions and say, you know what, this guy was a liar. He didn't have integrity. We need to do better as a party. That's going to be appealing to that undecided voter, as opposed to trying to defend the guy that the undecided voter has already decided is trash. Right. So you're just pushing them away to the other side by doing that. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we need to change. We need to do better. We need to do better. We, we, do. we need to wake we up. We can do better. I, I've I've done you know, I've, I've done a lot of... Um, we have done better in our lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had, like, these conversations um, and then, you know, either guest speaking at places or talking with stuff, uh, start talking with people, um, especially being overseas and people asking about the United States and, and what they're seeing in the news and stuff. Like, I, with all the issues that we have, um, our, our history, there's some systematic you know, systemic, you know, discrimination and, and things and, and everything that we've got going on, I do think that we can be who we try to tell the world that we are. We have that potential, but we have to get over these things. We have to hold these politicians accountable. We have to, you know, call people out in their BS. We have to have nuance in our discourse. You know, we can be that. And, and it could be, maybe it's part of my indoctrination growing up in the United States where, you know, we are all kind of taught like, you know, America is this amazing place. But, and then again, it could, like I said, it could be part of my indoctrination being, you know, having that education here. But I think we have that potential. I think we really do have that potential. I agree. I agree. And there are signs of encouragement, right? Sure. I mean, people are rejecting this type of behavior and um, even at the midterms we thought that it was going to be all bad news and we saw some pushback against some of that extremism and so i think the country is beginning to recalibrate honestly when trump was elected it kind of threw things into haywire i mean it it did disturb the equilibrium of the country for better or for worse it you know it, it changed a lot and it, it kind of brought out a lot of extremism quite frankly, on both sides. And I hate being a both sides guy. It's not what I'm trying to do, but you did honestly see it on both sides. Now, I think we're starting to get away from that a little bit. Now, obviously, we're not completely there. Like House vote, for example, you do have the far right wing of the Republican Party kind of controlling what's happening, even though they're not the majority by any stretch. They're blocking the moderate, the more moderate candidate from winning and causing issues with that so we're not where we need to be of course but right. i do think that we're starting to course correct i i would i would like to believe that um and then you know i get looking at the article that came today we're dealing with uh florida governor DeSantis and the the um so-called stop woke act where basically they're basically would basically persecute college professors from teaching um, about racism and, and critical race theory and, and these types of things. They're, they're putting into law what they're able to teach because they don't agree with the, the material. And it's, this is McCarthyism, basically. And it's not a good direction for it. And I was, I was just got an email today actually from uh, Temple University Japan asking me to guest speak again 
um, you know, this semester. And it is in one of these quick cases, uh, one of these classes where it's, um, what is it? Uh, the importance of race in America or something like that. I forget the name of the class. But, and I, and I had to, I sent the email back to the professor. I'm like, with the article, like, can you imagine you wouldn't be able to teach this class in America? You're from America. You could not teach this class in America. Oh, but in Florida, at least, right? In Florida, sorry, in Florida. You couldn't teach it in Florida. And I believe it was seven other states have enacted similar laws restricting that. And it's like, this is not what America, what we're supposed to be at. This is not who we're supposed to be. Right. And, you know, when you go to law school, you're taught all of these systemic issues because that is what America is. I mean, not to sound depressing or anything, but when you start looking about the, the Constitution and how the amendments came about, for example, and how the case law was formed around things like the 14th Amendment after the Civil War and with Reconstruction, you, you're starting to learn about how equality became the law in the country. And even though we had the 14th Amendment after the Civil War, we didn't get really uh, Brown v. Board of Education until the 50s, which is when we had separate but equal no longer being allowed um, true equality, if you want to call it that, under the 14th Amendment. So, and and, and that's just on race, but then, then you can start talking about sex and gender and sexual identity and all these different things, which, you know, are, are very much still being fought uh, along with racial battles. So, the, the history of America really uh, is 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 that, but it's it's built on that, and it's also built on trying to move away from that, and it's kind of like that slow crawl towards equality based on where we came from. And it's like how Martin Luther King said, right? The the arc of justice, is, the arc of history is long, but bends towards justice. Um, you have all these factors in play, but when you go to law school, you're learning about all this because you're learning about how our law developed in America, and you see it tied to the history i mean so right. it's not like something that really should be uh, shot away from or we should be afraid of it's just who we are and what we are and it's a good thing because it's showing where we're striving to get right and as long as we're moving towards that it shouldn't it, we shouldn't really have this contention like the learning about about the history and knowing about the history the problem is in, in a lot of cases it's it's not really ancient history you know it's uh, and I was just watching yesterday, I watched um, Harriet, the Harriet Tubman movement. I was watching it with my mother and Harriet Tubman, I believe, died in like 1911. Um, my great grandmother, who I who I knew, she did. She died in 1990. She she was born in 1904. So we think of Harriet Tubman and we think, oh, my God, this is like 200 years ago. But no, she was alive when my great grandmother was alive, who I knew. You know, it's like this is very much still present day stuff. So it's, it's really crazy. Right. Think about the case Loving v. Virginia, 1967. Mm. That was a case that said you could no longer, states could no longer ban interracial marriage. Mm. It wasn't until 1967. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, before them, it, it was the Sejanation. law. The Sejanation laws were very common. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this is something that's not just recent, but still being fought. And we need to be able to acknowledge that. But we need to be able to understand the history and where we came from in order to have a clear picture of where we want to go. Otherwise, we're just doomed to keep making the same mistakes. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So. so very, very crazy, very crazy stuff. But fight will 
undoubtedly continue. Yes, it's exactly. But also, I think we need to allow ourselves to have that hope because we do see positive signs. And so yeah, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy when we just take this defeatist attitude and say things are just so bad right now, it's not even worth the fight because right. yeah, then we're going to lose. If we're not in the fight, we're guaranteed to lose. But you do see encouraging signs. And yes, it, it is discouraging that oftentimes the loudest people among us are those extremists. And it seems like many of us are almost fed up. Like we just don't want to fight all the time, right? Like we're just tired, we're exhausted and we wanna live our lives in peace. Um, we do need to fight, but it, it manifests itself in different ways. I mean, it doesn't need to be a, a vocal shouting match. It right. could be done at the ballot box. It could be done by running for office, advocating for certain legislation, doing work in your community. That's the fight that we need to keep up, right? Talking, I think a lot of us just saw that talking past each other doesn't get us anywhere, so why bother? Right, absolutely. And and like you said, a lot of people are tired. The people are just tired of hearing about it. And I think um, the more people reject certain status quo things, the more issues get brought up and get addressed. And so that brings even more stuff that's being talked about. It adds to people being tired about it. Oh my God, I hear about this here. Oh my God, I hear this there. And I mean, and it's things that need to be talked about. It's things that wasn't addressed before. We got whatever the issue were that we should have addressed before and didn't, and didn't. but so much at one time can give people fatigue. And, you know, we, we just have to get through it. We have to solve it. We have to stop putting things off in that regard. Right, well, speaking of things that are no longer put off, Let's look at some of the laws that have taken effect in New York State this year. One of them, one of them we spoke about on the on this uh, on this show. Okay. One of the issues that it, that a law is seeming to to solve. Which one is that? Um, about the confusion with the independents and the independent party. Ah, okay. Yes. Yeah. Remember we had that uh, that discussion here uh, on the show. And so one of the laws that's uh, coming into effect, the removing the independence party. So the, the law prohibits political parties from using independent or independence in their name, forcing the independence party to rename its party. That's so, pretty much on the nose. And I understand why they did it. And we talked about the whole history behind that and why it makes sense even. But right. it is kind of funny that the law is like, no party shall be called independent or independence. Because obviously it's, aimed at that one particular party, which is already called the Independence Party. It was like, almost like a law saying, no podcast shall be called Nuance or hosted by Mike Scala or Jay Carter, just in case something like that were to come up one day, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, I thought that was that was interesting because we had talked about like that need, that should be something that, because it was confusing voters and people who thought they had registered um, a certain way were being affiliated with a party that yeah. they weren't part of and yeah. There was a survey done years ago, but it found that most people who were registered to the Independence Party thought they were just independent and not affiliated with any party. Right. And so it does cause confusion. And this is not unheard of in the sense that there is already law, in addition to this now, that says that if you're running as a third party candidate, as an independent candidate, you cannot choose a party name which is confusingly similar to an existing party. So 
the whole idea is not to confuse voters because right. people don't know. They look down, and you know, people look down at it quickly. Also, if it's like a petition or whatever it is, even a voter registration form, sometimes you just kind of glance at it, you check a box, and you, you know, it looks right to you in that moment, but it can be confusing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was some voter registration bills. Um, New York residents will now be able to register to vote up until 10 days before an election, whether it's a general election, uh, primary or special election. Previously, the day the cutoff was 25 days. So now it's 10 days. That's good. Do you think we should have same day registration or does that open the door to potential manipulation or abuse? Um, I think it could be, it could extend the lines. If people are trying to register and vote at the same time, the lines are already increasingly long. If you if they've got to also make time for that person to fill out a voter card and their information and then go in and vote, that's going to increase the time people vote. And it's already a, a mess. I think, you know, pre-registration, maybe it should be easier in some ways or more accessible in some ways, but same day might make it a little bit more time consuming. There are states that do have same day registration. In fact, how does that work? Does it work for almost half of the US states allow our voters to register at the same time they vote? Does that increase their times, do you think? Or, or has anyone um, seen Sure, it could. But is it worth that? And it's not like it takes forever to fill out that form. Right. You know, someone could walk you through it and tell you that's it. Be careful about the Independence Party, which is not gonna be a party anymore. But rent is too damn high party it's a fundamental right that's really what it comes down to voting is a fundamental right and so i think we need to be doing everything that we can to make it easy as long as it's lawful as long as people are voting the way they're supposed to we shouldn't be trying to turn people away or making it difficult to do or put these kind of barriers in place people have very busy lives and so a lot of times they're not going to realize they've got to register so far out in advance so it's good that we're moving it closer right that was 10 days that's a step in the right direction, certainly. But what if you just move somewhere? What if you intend to vote, but you forgot that you had to do it in advance? So you, you didn't know. You show up on election day excited for your first vote, and you're told that you can't vote here. You're not registered. That right. happens. And yeah, yeah. it disenfranchises people, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, I mean, yeah, they should try it and, and see, because you got to look at also, the flip side, if it makes it longer, if the wait times become longer because people are registering at the time they're going to vote, some people might just walk off because, like I said, they're busy, they've got things to do, they get frustrated. Oh my God, I've, you know. Yeah, I can see issues like, for example, if you're a campaign, you're going to say, I'm going to run this massive voter registration drive on election day and I'm going to bring a thousand new people to vote. They're going to sign up and they're going to vote. And like you're holding up a line for everyone else behind that. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's about that 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 attempt to make it a better system. So if if it works, hey, try it. See if it works. If if it makes things longer and more difficult, then let's look at a different route. We should always be looking to make the system better, to be more accessible, and to be easier on on people exercising their right to vote. What about switching party affiliation? Would you support being able to do that? on the same day, let's say, of the primary? Mm. I, I can see the potential for misuse 
um, of that, because then it could become a political tactic for some, you know, for some. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'd have to think about about that. Right. I think that's the concern, but it's funny because number one, people still try that, even though you can't do it on the day. Right. They adhere to deadlines, but it is attempted as a tactic where they'll say, we're going to encourage people to switch their party to vote in this primary in advance of that primary. Right. But how effective is it really at altering the results or influencing the results of an election? Right. I don't know, because you potentially need thousands of people to do it. I mean, obviously, in a close race or a lower turnout race, it makes a bigger difference and it could right. change it. But generally speaking, are people really manipulating a primary by doing that? I don't know. On paper, it seems plausible. Right. But at the end of the day, people are voting the way they want to vote. I mean, you could still do that, right? Like if you're a Republican, let's say, who wants to vote in a Democratic primary, if this is like your big grand idea, you could do it. Not on the same day, but you can switch a party and vote in that primary. I mean, it could happen. But it has it led to this like massive takeover of primaries? I haven't seen it. Even in 2021, when there was a lot of funding behind this idea of getting independents to change over to a Democrat to vote in the primary to make a candidate become more moderate. I don't know how much effect that effort really had. Yeah, I think it'd be, you know, something to, to, to look at again, try it. If it's something that's necessary, um, you know, it's something that can make voting easier for people to be, make it to where people can participate uh, easier, um, then we should implement it. Um, oh. But look at, yeah, no, speaking on that, here's another bill signed into law by Governor Hochul, the wrong church bill. Now, this has to do with affidavit ballots, where there was a wrong church fool, sounds funny, the wrong church, but basically you're, you're at the wrong church, right? You're going to school a bit, or church, you're in the wrong place. And it's prevented thousands of affidavit ballots from being counted since 2005, when it first took effect in New York, with New York City having the most affidavit ballots dismissed. Um, in fact, a 2021 report by a voting rights advocacy group called Vote Early NY found that nearly 13,800 affidavit ballots were disqualified in the 2020 general election alone because they were cast at the wrong polling site. So what this does is it does not disqualify your affidavit ballot if it's cast at the wrong site within the correct assembly district. And that, you know, without knowing even more details, to me, that sounds like a good thing uh, because that means those 13,800 people, for example, would have been able to get their vote counted, um, which is what we want. We want more people participating. Um, and and 13,800 is not a small amount. Uh, we've seen, especially in, in these smaller or these local elections, even up to congressional elections, you know, some elections can be decided at 13,800 votes. Oh, so sure. it's not a small amount. That's, that's a very big amount. Yeah, I mean, that 13,800 was not just for one race. That was... Of course, of course. But in, in general, like, it's just not a... It's pretty significant. No, it's very significant. And I saw some argument about this one. I think it was even the sponsor of the legislation was defending it. And someone was saying, well, this could lead to fraud and manipulation. But, you know, basically his answer was, so you think people are showing up to the wrong phone side on purpose? How does that help? Hmm. Right? Like if you're afraid that this is going to lead to fraud, how? Are people purposely voting in the wrong place? Right. And, and, and does it matter if they're voting in the wrong place? 
Right. Well, the only difference would be, let's say there's a local election that you're eligible to vote for based on where you live, that, you know, if you're in the wrong place, there might be different different local races on that ballot. So I would want to be careful with that to make sure that your vote only counts for the races that you were supposed to vote for in the first place. Right. Absolutely. Just be like, okay, well, these votes don't apply to this, to this area. We'll just ship this off to the area where it does apply. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it sounds like a good thing to me. You know, yeah. Get more, get more stuff, get more stuff counted. How about this one? More judges in New York City. <laughs> yes, I saw that. You know, my first reaction to this is: is, is it just a way for the parties to give more patronage jobs to people? <laughs> it sounds, it sounds bad. I don't want to say judges are per se patronage positions, but you know what I mean. Oftentimes, yeah. the party might have a roster of people to try to support for different seats, and they want to just plug them into different roles. Yeah. Could this be a way to facilitate something like that? Right. There's about four new family court judges and 10 Supreme Court judges, all in New York City. Right. Family court judges are appointed by the mayor. Supreme Court judges are chosen by voters. But let me add the caveat that the parties play a very heavy role in whom gets nominated. So yes, the voters get to vote, but oftentimes the voters don't have many, if any, choices. The party machines do put these candidates up and in the case of the family court justices the mayor appoints them directly so right i'm a little cynical on this uh, maybe i have a right to be maybe i should be on this one i just question you know as a lawyer i'm trying to be fair and of course i welcome all of these new judges and i'm sure that they'll do a great job but i do ask myself what was the genesis of this right. particular legislation was it a way to create more positions to plug people into seats now, I know it said that, you know, part of the idea was to help uh, speed through some of the backlog because there is a, a massive backlog of cases uh, in in New York and not just New York, but the country in general. And more judges will help get these cases seen and, and, and tried. And, and that is know. true coming out of the pandemic, especially because many cases were adjourned throughout COVID and courts are now just trying to get back into it but like you said there's such a big backlog that we need to try to speed the process up and of course we have things like the right to a speedy trial in our constitution and you know not all these cases are going to be these criminal cases obviously but even in family court you want to be able to get families a resolution right so yeah maybe someone can develop an, an, an ai judge (laughs) <laughs> AI judge. Well, that leads back, I guess, to our poll question, which we will put out again to get good results on that. You know, I've been on vacation, so I didn't have it up on my stories this week, but we will make sure that gets up to ask people about whether they're concerned AI is going to take their job. Yeah, if you're a judge, I could see that. I could see, in, I don't know, traffic court or certain situations. <laughs> right? Yeah, that would, that would, yeah, it would be very cut and dry. Like it'd be the humanity would completely be taken out of, of out of it. So. Yeah, but to be perfectly honest with you, you know, I was going to say that the AI could be more of a legal assistant or a clerk, if you wish, than the judge. You should still have that human judge. You could have computers aiding them and looking at certain things, like for example, 
I don't know, did you go past that light or not? I mean, obviously technology can give us that better. A judge should still look at it and look at the circumstances behind it and listen to the stories and figure out what's appropriate given the context. But you can have a lot of that groundwork. And if, in fact, we do have a lot of that groundwork done by technology currently. So going back to this issue of more judges, I don't know. I understand the idea that you want to get a resolution on these matters. Do you necessarily need more judges for that? Or could you have, not robots, but more people working in the background in support? For example, more law clerks. That could help maybe even more than the judges. Right. Or, or you know, find ways to streamline the process so there's not as much of a, a bureaucracy that, that holds things back. You know, so there's not so much on the judge's plate. There's not so much on the system's plate that, you know, maybe some ways to do that. Yeah, I agree. Well, here's a good one also. Paid family leave care for siblings. So yeah. starting this year, New Yorkers will be able to take paid family leave to care for a sibling with a serious health condition. Now, before, New Yorkers could only take this time to care for a spouse, a domestic partner, parent, step-parent, parent-in-law, grandparent, or a grandchild. But now this is going to be extended to siblings. I think it's a good thing. In 2016, I was working in the state legislature when we got paid family leave done is when we raised the minimum wage and started giving some of these increased benefits. Um, going to siblings, I think is another step in the right direction. Let's I enable agree. people to take care of sick people and their families who need it and get their time off from work covered for it. I agree, I agree. I agree. Um, you know, we should be looking at uh, more ways to help uh, our citizens um, and, you know, making it flexible in that manner, um, to me, makes sense. You know. Yes, absolutely. Now, here's one which is interesting. I actually was just having this conversation yesterday about this, how, you know, college football is big, college basketball in certain areas, and technically college athletes are considered amateur athletes, right? They don't get paid, but oftentimes they have a very big scholarship. Well, there was a controversy over whether they should be receiving compensation at all under NCAA rules that wasn't allowed, right? In New York now, there's legislation which took effect January 1st that says that students at New York colleges and universities, specifically those in the NCAA, can receive compensation from endorsements without losing their scholarship. Student athletes can also hire an attorney or agent for business deals without being penalized. Yeah, I mean, this has been a contentious issue for a long time because, I mean, NCAA is pretty much as big as the NFL as far as um, kind of money that it brings in. Um, I mean, college sports is huge. Um, and, you know, people have argued, like, these, these athletes should be compensated for their talents and their time. Um, so I think it's been changing. It's... It, it has been changing. The culture has been shifting and then we're seeing laws reflect that. It is a difficult question. I think it's more difficult than it might appear because I think at first blush you say, yes, of course, they should be compensated for their endorsement deals and merchandise sales, even right. Anything that they can bring in, they should get a cut of. But we have to remember they are students still. They're not professional athletes. They're there to get a degree. And yes, of course, they're playing ball for their school and bringing in a lot of attention and revenue often for the school and for the state, which is great. But 
let's go back to who they are. These are kids, these are students, and they're not professional athletes. So do we want to put that kind of pressure on them even and treat them as if they are, which would further remove them from their academics, which is, I know I get it. It's kind of a joke already. It's like, yeah, a lot of them are just there on athletic scholarships. They don't really take their academics seriously. But do we want to encourage that even more? Do we want to feed that narrative even more? Or do we want to take a step back and say, these are just kids in college? But I think, I think that that question really um, falls on the universities that um, basically rely on these kids. And they put that pressure on these, on these students already um, to, to perform to come out to their school to help elevate their school in the rankings to 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 draw in more people like these schools bring in millions of dollars based off of these students sports efforts uh, and so i think if we're going to question we should we should also throw the question in there should that be allowed in the first place should college sports be something that is monetized in that way right. to that, to that level? Yeah, and I don't relate to college sports as much because I'm from New York City and we're just big into our pro sports teams. I know in parts of the country and even parts of certain states where the pro sports team isn't that prominent or there is no pro sports team, college college football and basketball and athletics is everything. And you'll see like 100,000 people at the game. We don't see that here. So it's like, I can't even relate to that. Right. But it is a big thing across the country and you know even in New York because we saw this legislation now taking effect in New York. So it is, it is something that happens. It's just not on the level that you see in, in some other places. And I don't understand it. I don't understand how people treat college sports as if it's professional. Like these are just college kids. Well, I mean, I mean, they're, they're highly talented. They're playing at a very high level. Um, and I've seen it, you know, um, when I used to live in, in Tallahassee, I was doing uh, part-time work as uh, an usher at um, the Civic Center. And this is where Florida State would play, uh, play their basketball games. And so, you know, this, this was also the same place where concerts would come in and they'd fill this whole thing. So there'd be thousands upon thousands of people that would come in here for these games. And so, I mean, everyone pays a ticket to come in. There's, there's money, there's refreshments yeah. going, there's, you know, it's it's that level. It's that should it level. be though? Should we should put that be? pressure on these college kids? Should it be? Yeah, I mean, or should it be? I mean, a lot of them aspire to play at that level, and so I don't know. If, I mean, I'm sure they do feel that pressure. Um, or should that again? Should that be a focus? Should that be like, okay, look, you're playing, but you know, we got to take the 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 economics out of it because you are here to be educated, right? So. Listen, as long as it's what we have, as long as these athletes are generating all this revenue, I think it's only fair that they get their cut. Yeah, I think it sounds like a good thing to me. Um, you know, um, of course, you want to make sure that things are being handled properly. Um, but ultimately, they should be looking out for the benefit of the student um, in whatever system that they, you know, put together. The last one I'll mention here before we wrap up is cosmetic testing on animals. The law now is that it's illegal for retail stores to sell cosmetic products, which were found to have been tested on animals. And if caught, they will face a $5,000 fine and additional $1,000 fine for each day a business violates the law and a potential probe by the state attorney general. 
Now, this also builds on a global trend. This has been happening throughout the world. Products that have been tested on animals have been outlawed by the countries, such as India, Canada, and Switzerland already. I think it's, you know, it's a good thing. It's, it's definitely a good thing. And it, you know, it's a step towards, you know, being better humans, I think, you know, we can, it's, it's all part of that trying to be better at whatever it is that we're doing. You know, in the past, they did these things on animals and, you know, we're looking and learning new things and people are understanding, okay, you know, animals do have more feelings and emotions that you might've previously thought this is not a good thing to do. Um, we can do it better through different ways of science that we've learned since then or whatever. And, you know, don't get so stuck in that way. Let's do better as much as we can. So. Well said. And that almost sounds like the bottom line. Hey, whatever works. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do better. I feel like that was the recurring theme. Yeah. Right. Let's do better. Yeah. And it's also good because it's New Year's and maybe we could have let in with New Year's resolutions. I don't really have many. I just try to do well all the time. I'm not perfect, but I try not to wait until January 1st to have a resolution and then break it. But I think this is a good time of year to remind ourselves, just like Thanksgiving, we said, right? Like we want to have that spirit all year round, but it's a good time to remind ourselves to be grateful and to show that gratitude to people in our lives. You can take that same approach to New Year's and say, let's try to do better all the time. But you know what? Now that it's the beginning of January, let's take this moment to remind ourselves that we need to do better. And that's a constant struggle, just like we talked about the Constitution changing and the history of America going forward with these new laws. It's a constant fight. It's a constant move towards better. It's like that more perfect union. Never going to be perfect, but we want to strive to make it better. And that means even when things are feeling down and it looks like we're not going to get to where we want to be, we have to keep moving forward. That sounded like the bottom line to me. I guess that's the bottom line. Yeah, and, and and that's it's so true. So that's that's the New Year's resolution for for nuance and for the country should be to do better. Yeah, so. I mean it's simple, but I agree with that message. It's yeah, yeah, and then and, and that's and when you mentioned that line out of the Constitution, I think it's always been a favorite part of mine. Um, in order to form a more perfect union, so even in the language, it implies to do better constantly to form a more perfect union that means keep working on it right keep working on it never give up realize that the situation is never going to be ideal and even these systems that we're trying to work within they're never going to be ideal but we have to strive to keep making it better yeah absolutely thank you all for tuning in i actually have a dinner to get to which is late but i'm hungry and i've got to get to a dinner appointment so i will see you all next week Thank you, Jay. Thank you, everyone. Have a good night.